Understanding consumer behavior is tricky business. While demographers, economists, and marketers attempt to offer more categorical means of understanding us and our behavioral tendencies, shorthand and generalizations often don't tell the whole story, especially when exploring behaviors across global markets and cultures. I'm Doug Stevens, founder of Retail Profit, and in this second season of Retail Reborn, the Business of Fashion's podcast series on the fast-changing retail industry presented by Brookfield Properties, we're exploring the consumer of the future. Who are they? And how are their economic, technological, and social realities shaping new behaviors and relationships within retail? And so, in this, our second episode, we thought an important question to tackle was who are the consumers that will power the future of retail? Which, given interconnected global markets, unique economic and social circumstances, pervasive technological disruption, and fast-moving social and environmental trends, is an infinitely more complex question today than it ever has been. And sitting at the core of it all, the driver of much of our consumer behavior rests in the answer to an increasingly complex question. To what extent are we as consumers secure in our economic and social futures? This is a really interesting question, and I agree with where you started, which is the experience is, is so different across different countries, right? So if you take, you know, the Chinese millennial consumer, you know, their outlook in terms of growth of their prospects is significantly different to the American consumer which in turn is significantly different to the Brazilian consumer. That's Tracy Francis, a senior partner with McKinsey & Company based in Sao Paulo, Brazil, where for many years she led the firm's consumer and retail practice in the region. To her point, the economic situations of consumers across markets couldn't be more different. In the United States, for example, a 2020 breakdown by the Harvard Business Review of Federal Reserve data found that more than 50% of American wealth is held by baby boomers born between 1946 and 64. In sharp contrast, millennials hold less than 10%. Some of that deficit, both in the U.S. and other developed countries, according to economists, can be chalked up to the fact that many millennials were forced to enter the workforce in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, something that impacted their earning potential and wealth. Then came the double whammy of the pandemic, providing economic deja vu for many millennials while also handicapping the economic prospects of the younger demographic cohort, Gen Z, who were disproportionately represented in many categories hardest hit by the pandemic, including travel, food and beverage, and leisure. These factors, combined with decades of stagnating wages, particularly for unskilled work, has undermined the economic prospects of young Americans and, to varying extents, millennials across developed economies. By contrast, however, in China, for example, young consumers are powering an unprecedented level of spending being the first generation to come of age during China's economic revolution. While their parents were noted for, as the Chinese say, eating bitter or living through financial hardship, their children have grown up in a relative state of privilege, where things like owning one's own apartment and acquiring luxury goods has become more expectation than aspiration. In fact, almost 80% of luxury spending in China today is among those under the age of 40, spending so robust that it has Chinese economists worried. 
referring to some young consumers as the Moonlight Clan, a term applied to those who spend more than they earn on an annual basis. Policymakers are taking note, with Chinese President Xi Jinping recently calling for, quote, reasonable adjustment of excessive incomes, end quote, and measures to curb irresponsible spending habits. But while the economic realities of young consumers in developed versus emerging economies may be different, according to Francis, they also have at least one surprising commonality. I do think one thing that's common that has happened for both of those generations, and by the way, millennials and and Gen Z, they see the world very differently to each other. But one thing that has happened for both of them was, you know, very much kind of 2008 global financial crisis. And even in geographies like Latin America or Brazil, for example, where the global financial crisis wasn't that um, wasn't that serious, you know, a couple of years later, you did have a major um, a major recession, right? So what that has done, and if we take Gen Z different to millennials, right? What that did for Gen Z is that in their formative years, they saw their parents and their family structures in very difficult moments, right? So you know, in emerging countries such as Latin America, right, you had situations where very young people were going to work in order to help support the family's income. In developed geographies, less of that, but still you you see people being very much impacted by this notion of a crisis. And that changes how you feel about the world. The millennials were already a bit older, right? And so, you know, for them, and, and because of their psychological mindset, that created anger and and reinforce the desire to revolutionize the system. In the case of Gen Z, what that created was a kind of a desire to actually be meaningfully employed, right, and fomented a view of the world which is much less disruptive and much more kind of cooperative with institutions, right? They want evolution typically as opposed to revolution and want to participate in the system, right? So that's kind of the mindset. Indeed, according to Francis, these early and profound disruptions in the lives of young consumers globally may proffer one of the only things she believes most young consumers today, regardless of region, share. Uncertainty. In a world of, you know, COVID, in a world of automation, in a world of all kinds of trends around the future of work, you know, I think there's a lot of uncertainty around what's going to happen, right? In a world of, you know, net zero and, and all the challenges, you know, we reported, we published a report yesterday saying that we need, you know, 9.2 trillion to fix net zero, right? I mean, these are crazy numbers. And so you have this whole question of what happens, which generation is going to pay for that and how is that going to play out, right? So I, so I do think it's a world of a lot of uncertainty. And as I said, right, I think that plays into the millennials' desire to, you know, disrupt and the Gen Z's desire to, as we always say in Brazil, right, to have a carteira de trabalho, right, a, a document with a signed job that, you know, gives you access to state-provided services. For Francis, this has led to a new level of conscious consumption as a hedge against this new and formidable level of economic and social uncertainty. The notion that simply receiving an education and securing gainful employment are no longer guarantees of any level of longer-term prosperity given the increasingly frequent global disruptions these generations have been impacted by. Something that she says is not only forming new attitudes and behaviors, but indeed giving rise to new growth sectors and categories. I think these consumers, they differ dramatically from the generations before them, right? So if we take, for example, Gen Z, you know, some of the work that we did now four or five years ago talked about, you know, this notion of wanting to 
consume consciously. And by the way, millennials also have that, right? Again, you know, it, it varies a little bit differently as to how it manifests, but this notion of, you know, wanting to consume consciously and kind of a little bit less is more, right? When I said it manifests differently, right? You know, the millennial kind of wants to be part of a something, whereas the Gen Z really wants to be an individual, right? So how they think about brands is different. But if you if you take this notion of conscious consumption, you know, one of the things that we were talking about five years ago was, you know, the way the cutting edge of these generations were doing things like participating in groups for swapping items, like a barter economy. And you see that now. I mean, this has played out into, you know, significant companies that are offering used products or circular economy products and that type of thing. So I think that's one element, right? We should not expect the same, I think, volumes going forwards. Doesn't mean that revenues aren't going to be growing, but volumes, I think, will be impacted. I wonder how much of this uncertainty is rooted in the broader issue of income and wealth polarization. And while we've cloaked the issue with catchphrases like the gig economy and side hustles, pointing to them as signs of entrepreneurism on the part of young generations, are they really just evidence of a more pernicious problem? That being that increasingly young people live in a world where a full-time job doesn't pay the bills, much less accrue wealth. Indeed, in many developed countries, incomes when adjusted for inflation have remained stubbornly stagnant since the mid-1980s, while GDPs in most of those same countries have grown exponentially through the same period, pointing to massive economic growth that's been widely uneven in its distribution. How big a problem is that? And what challenges is it or will it cause for retailers at large? I think this notion of sustainable, inclusive growth is the problem of our times. Essentially, what we believe is that growth is fundamental, right? We are unapologetic about growth because growth actually needs to fund everything, right? But that growth does need to happen in a way that both is sustainable and inclusive, right? To your last point, this question of inclusion. And when when we're thinking about inclusion, of course, we're thinking about, you know, what inclusion means within companies, right? Different types of populations. But we most importantly are thinking about, or as importantly, are thinking about economic inclusion, which is your point, right? If we have a situation where, you know, people are left behind, our social contract is inevitably frayed. So if you think about oil producing countries, right, if we are on a path to sustainability and net zero and all of that, right, 75% more or less of the average oil producing country goes away, right? At the same time, the Middle East is the largest youth population in the world. That's not going to end well if we don't, as a world, think about how to fix it. So I think, you know, first of all, I think it's an incredibly difficult and large question. So that's the first thing. And when we talk to, you know, CEOs around the world, right, this really resonates. Stakeholders, also stakeholders broader than CEOs, right? But, you know, it it really resonates. And I, I think the complexity of the problem also is understood. Which raises a different and equally crucial question. Can sustainability continue to be a priority for a consumer that is really just interested in being able to afford the things that they need to get by? Or will sustainability become seen as a luxury reserved for those with the means? And does this dichotomy go a long way to solving the riddle of how, on the one hand, millennials and Gen Z consumers prioritize sustainability while also leading the sales growth of brands like Shein? who many point to as the fastest of fast fashion players and hardly the poster child for environmentalism. 
this is a really good provocation, right? I think sustainability comes in lots of ways, right? I mean, if you start with Gen Z, the first lever they pull on sustainability, right? The first lever you and I pull, I'm probably insulting you for saying you're my age, but the first lever we pull is we read the label and is it, you know, a product that, you know, meets that aspiration, et cetera, et cetera. And we make a purchasing decision based on that, right? The first lever that a Gen Z makes, you know, the first lever they pull is, do I need the product or not, right? And so, so this question of conscious consumption does have embedded in it a reduction of purchasing. The second lever they pull is, do I need it firsthand or can I exchange with a friend or should I go to this secondhand website and put it for sale and get something else in return? And, you know, as we were talking about earlier, this almost barter economy, right? So there are substantial levers that come before the, am I prepared to pay X percent more for a product that is sustainable, right? So that's kind of my first reflection. The second reflection is the reason why we talk about these three words together as opposed to separate words, right, sustainable and inclusive growth, is the reality is exactly as you say, right, you can't fund the sustainability without the growth, right? And growth and sustainability alone without inclusion will fray the social contract. And so we, we have to have those things together so that to your point, people are able to make those choices. And now a word from Adam Tritt, the Chief Development Officer of our sponsor, Brookfield Properties, sharing his insights on retail from a real estate perspective. When we think about Generation Z, we see a generation that is very engaged in brick and mortar shopping, that wants to be inspired, they want to be spoken to, they want to understand the how and the why and appreciate the social mission of the brands that they're connecting with. So their ability to come into our property, experience the brand and all it has to offer, for us to layer on to that what we have to offer from a physical built environment standpoint, from our ESG position, all of that is very important to this younger consumer and our ability to work with the retailers to, again, build upon and expand and enhance what they're doing, forging that relationship with the consumer is very important. On a broader level, I wondered to what extent are North America and Western Europe no longer the center of gravity when it comes to the consumer? And what does that mean for the calculus that brands ought to be doing in terms of mapping out their global strategies? I mean, I think we can both agree on the first part of your premise, right, which is center of gravity has moved. The question is, what do you do then, right? So if you're a company that's not operating or hasn't learned yet how to operate in the East, then probably your comps versus your competitors who are operating there, they're never going to be as good, right? So in strategy, right, it's easier to surf a wave than to swim against a tidal wave, right? So there's a part of that, right? Now, I think this question of brand is very interesting and how you kind of portray yourself and how you set up your product mix and the categories you play in and all of that. Because the reality is that whilst the weight has gone there, right, what consumers want is just is nuanced, right? Incredibly nuanced. And I think being able to locally respond to those nuances and not just in like the brand advertising but actually product and all of that is not going to go away in the short term, right? Anyway, so I think what I'm saying is, yes, I think the center of gravity has completely shifted. I think companies that, you know, will will do well, will understand how to play in those markets and gain the growth from those markets. A lot of the profitability still comes from the Northwest. 
And so working out how to, to balance those things is, is critically important and how to bring the nuances of the product and the brand and all of that to you know, your global consumers is also critically important. With that said, Francis is also quick to point out that if you're a brand with significant growth aspirations and you're not doubling down on the global South and East, you're going to be left behind by your international peers. And to her point, a recent McKinsey report suggests that annual consumption in emerging markets, including China, India, Africa, and Latin America, will reach $30 trillion, something they call the greatest opportunity in the history of capitalism. An opportunity that is being largely fueled by young consumers in emerging economies. And nowhere might this be truer than in the luxury sector, where according to experts, almost 80% of the spending on luxury goods and services in China is done by people under 40. And according to research from both McKinsey and Bain, by as early as 2025, China will account for roughly half of all global luxury spending. The future is really about mainland China and to a certain extent as well, the up and coming American consumer. So you've gone global, and as such, you have to take into account values that might be different. So again, typically, if you're looking at a European consumer, she has been exposed for ages to these goods, and she probably lives in a country, whether it's you know, France or the UK or Spain or Italy, where you've had an aristocratic history. I think in the US, it's completely different. And so you have to adapt to the way people think and you know, what speaks to their different communities. Oftentimes, you'll hear people say that luxury's mission is to basically capture the cultural zeitgeist. Well, if you've become global, you have to take into account the specifics of the Chinese consumer and obviously the specifics of the American consumer. Erwin Romberg is a globally respected expert and analyst on the luxury retail sector and author of The Bling Dynasty and Future Lux. These specific luxury motivators, says Romberg, are fundamentally different for young Western consumers compared to their Chinese counterparts. So what I would say is um, likely the average Chinese luxury consumer is not as wealthy as you know her Korean, Japanese, American, European counterpart, but she's much keener to actually spend on names that enable her to fit in, enable her to show that she's succeeded and that she's worthy of developing a relationship with. So again, it's this focus on social integration and really a question of priorities. You know, I, I was talking about polarization. It's this idea that you might be cutting on certain expenses. You might be living actually in a small apartment, but, you know, having access and displaying certain brands will go quite far. And so people are always amazed at uh, this idea that Chinese luxury demand probably accounts for about 40% of total demand, given the, the discrepancies in the average income and average wealth. But again, it all depends what your priority is, right? So, you know, if it were just about money and financial means, the U.S. market would be tremendously bigger than what it is today. So again, it, it points to psychology, it points to fitting in purposes, it points to social integration. Whether you want to impress a family member, a friend, a coworker, whether you want to come across, again, as being, you know, trustworthy of building a relationship with. These are what Chinese call guanji, relationship building. This is uh, a great support for luxury demand. Turning to the Western consumer, Romberg says luxury as an idea has taken on a different meaning for young people. I think it's slightly different. I think it's more about social integration, more about being part of the club. I think if you look at Western millennials, specifically American consumers, under the influence of 
gifted designers and managers. I mean, we, uh, you know, we, we saw the passing recently of Virgil Abloh, who's been very influential in terms of building bridges between what you could see were maybe arrogant or maybe, you know, brands taking themselves a bit too seriously to make things a bit more casual, more playful, obviously addressing a younger, more diverse consumer as well. And gradually you're seeing a shift from a European slash aristocratic approach to more of a democratic, you know, casual, more laid back approach. But it's more about fitting in. It's more about, you know, again, being part of the club. But in all markets, says Romberg, young consumers are remarkably more in touch with luxury brands and trends than older generations, something he attributes to a couple of key factors. I would say as far as luxury is concerned, the exposure is now absolutely huge, whether it's via Instagram, TikTok, even gaming now and more. At the time I was a teenager, I would have probably never heard about the likes of Balenciaga, Dior, Vuitton, Cartier, whoever, if I had been based in the US then. I think any 15 to 25 year old now, because of such a big exposure, not only has probably heard about Balenciaga and others, unless they've been hiding somewhere, and has also probably a very positive perception of the different brands. So when you talk about difference in the current generation versus the previous one, I would say it's a difference in terms of being exposed at a lot younger age. And also probably if you look at the American consumer, not really knowing about the guilt factor, you know, the so-called guilt factor post 9-11, post the global financial crisis, it was seen as inappropriate, if not vulgar, to purchase luxury. That's completely evaporated now. That's not an issue anymore. And how much of that awareness of luxury brands, I wonder, has been a product of younger generations' exposure to the entertainment music industries? It's been decades since you've had, you know, the Gucci's and Vuitton's and others being quoted, you know, in rap lyrics. And at the same time, you had very limited associations between the brands and the actual artists. And that's changed dramatically. I mean, Gucci recently had a presentation of a new collection called Aria. And the whole music to the show was, was basically uh, rap songs with the, the term Gucci in them. You've had recently a very visible campaign from Tiffany with Jay-Z and Beyonce. It's this idea that, you know, again, give back to communities. You're not a European brand in your ivory tower. You're selling to very diverse communities in the U.S. and, and around the world. And I think, you know, I think finally there's a, there's a recognition of the importance of street culture, the importance of hip hop, probably influenced as well by, you know, a lot of successful brands in the U.S. market in completely different industries. You know, think about Nike or think about Puma. Think about, you know, how they have leveraged as well hip hop artists and their relationship with them. And while results across many luxury players have been remarkably strong, one can't help but wonder how much of current global spending on luxury is being driven by fiscal stimulus, wage subsidies, rent forbearance, and other government interventions through the pandemic, and how much by consumers in the face of an existential crisis rewarding themselves. In other words, is this activity in the luxury market temporary or part of a longer-term trend? Yeah, so I would tend to be on the more optimistic side. If you look at you know, what triggers luxury demand, it's essentially what you could call the feel-good factor. Uh, now, in the feel-good factor, you have a financial component and you have a psychological component. The financial component, to your point, has been clearly supported, again, by 
broadly speaking, equity markets, the property market and staycationing benefits, you saving up and freeing up a lot of uh, disposable income to be able to spend. And so pessimistic scenarios would point to the fact that, you know, that is one off in nature. And so the future is not that bright. I disagree. I think the psychological part uh, of the feel good factor is going to be well supported. And again, it's a change in perception. It's a change in how notably the American consumer accepts to trade up to brands. And again, you know, to, to your point, if you look at what used to be called the guild factor, again, post 9-11, post the, the global financial crisis, you don't really have that anymore. Consumers are not thinking it's inappropriate to spend on luxury. There is more of a survival trade. You know, I've lived through these past 18 months. I'm allowed to reward myself. I'm worth it, as, uh, as L'Oréal would put it. And I think the change in perception is ongoing because it's, you know, I don't want to use the term education because it's a bit pejorative, but clearly there is a knowledge of the brand today that's much, much better than with the previous generation. And beyond any national boundaries or international markets, there is another place where already it appears luxury brands are prepared to meet the consumer of the future, the metaverse, an emerging universe of online worlds rapidly being inhabited by hundreds of millions of young people particularly millennials and their younger generational cohorts, Gen Z and Gen Alpha. As noted in episode one of our series, luxury brands are leading the charge into these emerging worlds of the metaverse and spending significant sums of money to plant a flag there. I was interested to get Romborg's take on luxury's newfound enthusiasm for digital commerce, something many houses were late to embrace. Yeah, I think it's true that you're probably looking at a relatively complacent industry that was late on sustainability, that was late in terms of shifting sales online, and they're quite early here. So I don't want to sound too naive, but it's probably yet another one of the silver linings of the COVID period that's been a bit of a wake-up call. And indeed, they're quite early adapting to what's next in terms of the metaverse. I think probably because they get the sense that there's some business to be done, to be blunt, probably because they understand that you'll be addressing a young consumer and it'll be an opportunity for you to come across as being cool. And also it's quite complementary because if you look at NFTs, if you look at gaming, it's a bit more male heavy than the average of you know the cohort of consumers that the luxury sector traditionally caters to, which is essentially female dominated. So I think, again, they, they've looked at a lot of trains go by, you know, sustainability, now they're catching up. Online sales, well, you know, when everything was shut between March and June 2020, they didn't have a choice. And now they're finally on the front foot. And I think it's, you know, again, linked to the potential that they see there, both in terms of perception of their brands and in terms of, you know, bluntly the business that can be done there. And for brands who are mastering the physical world of retail experiences... Romberg points to two he views as exemplary and the trait that all category leaders seem to possess. Some of the brands that have done that incredibly well include Dior, include Montclair. You know, I think consumers, especially young consumers, reward the risk takers, reward creativity, reward the surprise factor. You know, you don't want to go buy a luxury store shopping window display and basically not react. And so I think if you, if you, pass by a shopping window display of Montclair, it's very unlikely that you'll think, oh, I want to buy that because it's, uh, you know, it's it bluntly going to be probably unwearable, but it will make you want to step into the story. It will make you want to listen to the story that the sales associate has for you. 
the Montclair management team has defined what they call new luxury in inverted commas. And for them, new luxury is somewhere in between Chanel and Nike. And I think that's a really intriguing definition of what they're trying to achieve. Again, not taking yourself too seriously, having a very casual hip approach to product development, and at the same time, working with phenomenally high quality materials and being, again, creative. You know, Dior uh, has pretty much tripled sales over the past three years because they've been incredibly inventive, incredible creativity. The runway shows are one of a kind. You know, I think if you accept to take risks, you'll be rewarded. This notion of taking risks in order to break through to a new generation of customers strikes me as something that gets talked about a lot in retail, and yet very few brands truly embark upon it. From my point of view, it's because to truly risk very often involves innovating, and true innovation involves doing things that have never been done before. And that's where too many brands lose their nerve, relying instead on tweaking the status quo and calling it innovation. But some brands take a bolder approach, literally changing categories and industries in the process, and in doing so, change the fundamental nature of the consumer experience in their category, often winning over younger customers in the process. One such brand is Warby Parker. Founded in 2010 by partners Dave Gilboa and Neil Blumenthal, Warby Parker aimed to disrupt the status quo in the optical market, a market that was largely dominated by a handful of powerful brands, which, as Blumenthal and Gilboa saw it, resulted in overpriced products wrapped in what were often inconvenient and lackluster consumer experiences. They aimed to attack both problems offering a direct-to-consumer, digitally-native optical buying experience that changed the industry. By 2015, the brand was voted the most innovative brand in retail by Fast Company, and by that time had extended into physical retail stores with square foot sales topping those of Tiffany & Company. Last year, they announced a plan to add 35 new stores post-pandemic. I caught up recently with Warby Parker Senior Vice President of Retail, Sandy Gilsonen, to get her take on how a brand like Warby Parker has and continues to be relevant, especially to young shoppers. Turns out that much of the key to understanding young consumers begins with listening to them, both outside and perhaps even more importantly, inside your organization. We've got Gen Y and Gen Z team members that are really woven throughout our entire core in our retail stores, as well as in our corporate organization. And we want to make sure it's a experience that also holds meaning to them. And, you know, we really take their feedback to heart. And I think that's a big part of Warby Parker that has been a pivot for me as I look back at my retail career. I think we always think about feedback that you get from your team members. And yes, absolutely, I hear you. But at Warby, we actually do something about it. We take that feedback and we've got dynamic tools to be able to really take that and do something about it. And I think one way that that materializes is through some of our platforms that our team members get to use even to process a transaction. It's this flywheel of communication and innovation, says Gilson, and that has allowed Warby Parker to be responsive, resilient, and innovative. In 2019, for example, Warby Parker became one of the first brands in the optical market to use augmented reality technology to allow customers to try on glasses virtually, something that has since become table stakes in the optical experience. But 
for Gilson, customer experience isn't tied to any particular technology or innovation, but rather a complete view of the consumer's experience with the brand and honing that experience to a level of craft, something Neil Blumenthal refers to as sprezzatura, in essence, rehearsing something to the point where it can be executed with casual perfection. And it's this attention to the complete experience, says Gilsonen, that is key to reaching shoppers today, particularly millennials and Gen Z. I think that, you know, we really try to find solutions to customer pain points. It's painful to come to a retail store. It can be inconvenient, except for those people that really like to shop, but it can be really hard to get into a retail store. There is a barrier often when you want to go shop in retail. So we really consider what does customer feedback do to help us to make critical decisions around our brick and mortar business. And one example of that goes back to really understanding that customers really do for us strike a balance of visiting us in store and online. And we want to make sure that we streamline access to our offerings across channels to really meet that customer where they are. So how do we make it feel seamless and easy? If you found a pair of frames online, how do we we get you to find those in store and make it feel like both our online and in-store experience are connected, which I think actually removes some of the barriers and makes it a really integrated shopping experience when you get a chance to visit. And we really were able to employ some features like bookmark and favorites in our Warby Parker app. And this gives the customers a great opportunity to keep track of the frames that they're interested in. And that's both for in-store and online. And then we recently launched a new telehealth service, and that is virtual vision test by Warby Parker. And this really allows customers who can't make it into a store to renew their prescriptions all virtually. And we also now can do that for contact lenses as well. So it's really for us, that's another barrier to even coming in and getting your glasses is how do we remove some of that in our retail stores? And we know that that's been really a win for us. But we also really want to make experiences fun. So how do we make it enjoyable once you get into the store? And I know the physical spaces aren't necessarily what you think about, but really each of our stores has original artwork. And in many cases, that's actually from a local artist that's connected to the community. So often customers come in, they recognize the artist. An artist sends their friends in, and it really does create great vibe and a really great conversation on the floor. We also do some unexpected things. And also we really want to make sure that when a customer comes in, the experienced eyeglass wearers sometimes want a fast experience. And as an eyeglass purchaser, it isn't always fast when you're going out there. We really enable our teams to make it as fast or as slow as a customer per really prefers. They can pop into a store or online and make a quick purchase, um, but they also can really take the time to interact with our sales team adding on that layer of digital technology and making sure that, hey, I saw this pair of frames online that we can quickly get to that is a huge win for us. And I think as we incorporate tech as part of the journey, it really helps to speed that customer through the store and build our credibility. The linchpin within that experience, says Gilson, and comes down to corporate culture, a culture that gives people the feeling they're part of something that's a force for social good. You know, as we think about it, Warby Parker was really founded with social impact in our DNA, and it's really built into our business model. And honestly, we see this as more essential. And honestly, it's table stakes for our customer mindset. And it's a big draw for our customers and our employees. And one of those is really our buy a pair, give a pair program. Specifically, for every pair of glasses sell, we distribute a pair of glasses to someone in need through a social 
entrepreneurship model where we empower adults with training opportunities to administer basic eye exams and sell glasses for ultra affordable prices. And we work with nonprofit partners like Vision Spring, who's been really our partner for the last 12 years. We also have a domestic program called Pupils Project. It is really a foundation of Warby Parker. And I think that truly gives you an experience outside of your four walls that I think is incredibly meaningful to employees of today. So who is the future consumer that so many in the retail and fashion sectors are hanging their hopes on? It's clearly a complex question without any one-size-fits-all answer. What we know for sure is that our spending habits are molded by the prevailing economic, social, and technological realities of our time, and perhaps never before have these pillars of consumer behavior been shifted so rapidly. In the global West, they are generations marked by economic upheaval. In China, more a product of economic revolution. But all live with varying levels of uncertainty and trepidation about their economic futures. Yet they also live in a world fueled by popular culture, status, and social media, and the luxury lifestyles so often portrayed there, forcing some to scrimp on daily needs or borrow to fund luxury spending. Others are powering a sea change in resale markets, increasingly preferring secondhand luxury over first-run fast fashion, which many point to as being intertwined with more conscious consumption. And their expectations of retail are indeed far greater than previous generations. Convenience, service, quality, customer experience, and community are all in play for retailers running a constant foot race against a revolving door of digitally native brands, direct-to-consumer offerings, and emerging marketplaces, all of which sit in the palm of the customer's hand. A race that only those brands with the courage to risk, rethink, and revolutionize their categories can hope to compete in. Tune in next week when we discover how consumers will purchase products and experiences, looking at the nature of payment and currency itself. Subscribe to the Retail Reborn podcast wherever you get your podcasts to ensure you never miss an episode of Retail Reborn Season 2, presented by Brookfield Properties. Until next time, I'm Doug Stevens.